podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Wizards of the Wicked podcast. Yaz is still away. Rumour has it he's geocaching, but as ever, don't take my word for it. So it's me, Ben Gardner, filling in again. And we've got the WCM pair of magazine editor Joe Harmon and editor-in-chief Phil Walker, as well as staff writer James Jim Wallace, joining us to discuss the IPL, some big English cricket news, and to pick out a season in the Sun Eleven. But first of all, since Yaz isn't here, I've decided to bring back an old favourite. Phil? Yes? What's your moment of the week? Um, learning about geocaching. <laughs> Uh, no, we'll leave you, we'll leave you as alone. Um, so we're bringing it back just for the one week, the moment of the week. Well, you know, quite if, cheeky. If, if people like if it, we do it really we, well, then Yaz might let us keep it. Yeah, got to run it by the big man, though, yeah. haven't we? All right, well, we cross that bridge when we come to it. My moment of the week uh, has to be Joss Butler's um, mini masterpiece to keep Rajasthan Royals in this year's IPL. Uh, he was moved down the order, having opened for the majority of the tournament. Uh, batted at five against Chennai um, on a bit of a dog of a pitch. Chennai huffed and puffed to get to one two five. It was one of these kind of hinge games as well for both teams. Neither of them have particularly lit the tournament up. And Butler's own story is probably reflective of that as well. He's he's simmered away, but he hasn't really quite nailed it too much yet in this tournament. They moved him down to number five, chasing one two five. They were three for spit. And Butler then batted as if on another level, really, to everyone else in that game. And it was a pedigree game. You had Stokes opening for Rajasthan. You had uh, Duplessis opening for Chennai. You had quality throughout both orders. And yet Butler just played a different different level of, of cricket, really. 70 not out, and he took them home quite comfortably in the end to keep them in the tournament. Um, they are hanging... In there, just about. They probably need to, well, they certainly need to win their last four to be sure of a place in the last four. They can maybe get away with three out of four, uh, but it's the business end of this tournament now. Um, and Rajasthan, who's who's my team for obvious pathetic parochial reasons, because Joffre opens the bowling and Stokes and Butler are in the side. They are hanging in there, and if they win this afternoon, admittedly this show might go out after this, so this might already be dead in the water, but if they win this afternoon, then they're still in it. And it's bubbling away. It's been, it's been quite a gripping tournament, actually. Yeah. Are, are there implications in Butler's innings for England, do you think? Obviously, that's, that's the debate well, in possibly, their T20i team. Possibly, but then when, when he opened against Australia at the end of this summer, he, he just, just cruised 77 not out, one of the most complete innings in that format you could possibly wish to see because he was facing some serious high-end world-class pace uh, and he saw them off sensibly. He was 20-odd off 20 balls, wasn't he, in that game? And then when the lesser bowlers came on, uh, he just, it was masterful from up top. The thing is, he can do it, he can do it either way. Uh, I can understand why Rajasthan have, have put him in the middle order because they were, they were spluttering through games and they don't really have that designated finisher in their side they're a bit of a lopsided cricket team Rajasthan so I can understand why they moved him down but I think in England's case because they have those players naturally in the middle anyway you know Morgan is a finisher uh, Stokes is a finisher in in T20 cricket uh, I think it makes sense for him to open for England in the T20 side but he's just he's just I, I think it was oh, it might have been Vaughan it might not have been I can't remember uh, but some, somebody said he's got to be pound for pound the best white ball batsman in the world. Now, you know, A.B. de Villiers might have something to say about that. And one or two others might have something to say about that. Uh, but he's not far off it. He's, he's a, the complete white ball player, I would say. Um, and my, my love is, is forever May when it comes to him. You know, my, it's a love supreme for Joss Butler. Yeah. The, the subplot of me as well, mate. The subplot for me in that innings was Steve Smith ticking along at strike rate for about 70, sort of a, a 90s era one string. day strike rate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just as a side point, Smith is really, really struggling. I, I, I thought about Joe Root the other day, who's desperate to play T20 IPL cricket. Mm. And you must be watching that and seeing Smith scrabble around and thinking, well, hold on. You know, why have I never got a gig in this thing? I think he will, Root, by the end of his, of his run. I think he will prioritise that in the end. Well, th- this competition in particular would have really suited him because yeah. run, run rates Slow, haven't been pitches. huge. Yeah. So, 
Totally, absolutely. <laughs> He's the, the problem he'll have is that he did very well in the blast, didn't he, this summer when he got his chances, but um, didn't have a very good big bash out there. Yeah, I, poor, I, think, I think that's kind coach. of that's yeah, that's a, a black mark on his record when franchises are looking around and wondering who do we go for. Uh, and you and you do get pigeonholed a little bit, mm. but he's he's with a proper bit of T Twenty cricket behind him. I'm, I've no doubt he's good enough. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, a good start on the moment of the week front. Uh, <laughs> Jim, can you carry the momentum on? What's yours? Mine is <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> yeah, yes, he's Jim or down. James. Uh, mine is IPL two. It's the 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 uh, three super overs in one day, mm. which never been seen before. The two. day the IPL jumped the shark. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. The day Spurs gave away a three 0 lead five <laughs> minutes ago. Not that. Yeah, yeah, that didn't register with me this week. Um, but Kolkata. So he ha- it was it was quite good because you had Owen Morgan pitted against Trevor Bayliss on opposite sides with Kolkata Knight Riders versus Sunrisers uh, and Lockie Ferguson doing a de- demolition job and getting two two wickets in a few. In three balls, yeah. So that was, uh, you don't often see that. And then the next match was just ridiculous. So they had one super over, both teams scored five, uh, and then they came out for another one. And it, no one really knew what was going on. You had to, um, you had the Anil Kumble sort of checking the rules. You have to use a whole new set of players, apparently. So n- not even the substitute batsman was allowed to come out, if that's right. So the, the eight players that are selected. So then I thought, and, and also I read that they just keep having super overs, so it got a bit Kafkaesque. I really wanted another one, <laughs> and another one, and just to see how many players they could get through them. You know, like when a keeper scores a penalty, it like takes a penalty and a penalty shootout. Yeah. You know, maybe Bayliss and Cumble would have had to come out, or whoever it was. I can't, not Bayliss. <laughs> fancy Cumble in that. Yeah, I reckon, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, how many... Because it, it ticked over into the next day, because they play quite late, don't they? Yeah. So it went into the Monday. Mm. Did it? Yeah. yeah. Went, went past the witch, you know? It went past into the next day. Right. <laughs> so I just thought, I really wanted another Super O. At least, you know, three in, th- three in one match would be quite good. Yeah. My, yeah. my favourite subplot from that game was, was Chris Jordan, who obviously we talked about extensively last week and has... You put the boot in, didn't you? Well, we didn't. That, that, no, so you did. You put, you put the boot in. But, as, but since then, he's, uh, he's, he's bounced back. Obviously, our, uh, he's, we've used the stick method rather than the carrot, and that's worked. <laughs> he's been listening. Uh, he, he took a wicket and went and sit at... Six and a bit and over in his in his first game after that podcast was recorded. But then it was in, in that super over game. There's there's form for Jordan in this tournament because the first super over game in this tournament they needed one off three balls, which became one off one, and then he hold out. Uh, and then in this game, uh, they needed two off the last, and Jordan sort of turned like an ocean liner coming back for the second. And when he went, he went and went so far around, sort of going around the square leg umpire to get into his crease. And even Brian Lara was a making fun of him on a, on Twitter did a little video and when you when you've managed to amuse Brian Lara I think you've gone you've Lara gone lampooned him with a silly video yeah he did yeah, yeah. sounds it, like a cry for help by the big man yeah and then we Joe, Joe you're conspicuously quiet on the IPL mate. well I am I don't want to I don't want to bore people with the details but to say I'm between TV service providers at the moment um, and never get Sky is the other thing I'll add am I allowed to say that yeah yeah, you can. That'll probably wipe out 30 grand off the <laughs> advertising budget, oh, but God. cheers. But anyway, I won't go into details because I'll just get angry. And it's just it's Have not... you got a TV, but it's not working? Yeah, so I can obviously watch it on my laptop, but I am actually also need to do some work on my laptop. And, yeah. it's, and it's difficult. And I'm very conscientious. Absolutely. As, as you'll, 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 Is that old line in Seinfeld? What's all your, what's all your furniture pointed at if you don't have a TV? But you've, you've got a TV. <laughs> well, it's still it pointed work. at the TV. That oh, right, just makes good. it all the more depressing. Um do you want my moment then? Uh, well, if I could, no, <laughs> no. If I could just first just finish on Jordan because oh, this we, whole we, moment no. thing's collapsing around us. <laughs> we, we've we've since got the scoop on uh, on Jordan's. Uh, he, he called it his his baffling route for the second run. Tarashim spoke to him yesterday morning. He said, uh, "Jordan said, I know watching from the outside that route I took to come back for the second looked baffling, but I actually lost my footing on the turn at the non-striker's end. If I tried to go back in the same direction, I definitely would have slipped up and fallen down. I changed my line back to get to the other end, which almost made it." The ball hit my foot on the way too, so I thought it deflected, which is why I didn't dive and it was just short. When that happens, you're thinking, not again. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's, uh, that, that's the inside scoop on, on why. That's an exclusive. So. <laughs> it is, yeah. I've never heard well, it well, described we as a root, a root back. Yeah. yeah. We, can, we can all rest easy now. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Put that one to bed. Uh, but, but really good to see, to see him back in form. And I, it's, it's, it is comforting to know that he kind of he can do it in those sort of press situations. And, and he, he then bowled the winning super over in that game as well. That so. he did, yeah. It's almost so. like he's a pretty good pedigree to 20 cricketer. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So we'll, we'll, we'll hold off on your moment for the moment, Joe, because it's non-IPR related. And if we can get through the IPR... God, I really do feel sidelined. <laughs> I'm going to get my TV sorted next week, I promise. In time for the final. <laughs> so... Uh, 
So my moment is, is A.B. De Villiers uh, winning Bangalore a game from nowhere. They needed a 35 of the last two overs, at which point he flicks the switch, hits three six and three balls off the, the hapless Jadavu Nadkat. Uh, and then a few balls later hits another six to bring up his 50 and hit the winning runs all, all in one go. Off Archer, I think Archer had the last over. I think that's right, yeah. Uh, it just it feels to me as if, and I mean, as you say, people are going to disagree, but he's, he's still actually by a distance for me the best T20 batsman at least in the world. And if he was playing one day in test cricket, he'd probably be near the top of that as well. I mean, but Butler is the other person in, in terms of being able to do all the roles you'd ask of someone. He's the other. But AB a, can do like everything to such a high level. He can build that innings. He can come out and smash from ball one. He can sort of buy his time a little bit and then pick his ball and explode. And you, can't, you kind of wonder each time that, because he doesn't play that much cricket these days, that each time a tournament rolls around, it's like, is this time he's going to have lost it? And if anything, he seems to almost be getting better, kind of more refined, more kind of honed as a player. And just in the wider thing of South Africa, if he does end up playing that T20 World Cup, Quinton de Kock has really hit his straps in the last kind of week or so in the IPL. Amrik Naughty, we, we discussed last week. Uh, Rabal is obviously a brilliant bowler. Chris Morris has been only come in halfway through the tournament and has kind of turned Bangalore into like a like real title contenders. So that's it, obviously Safka always go into a global tournament being quite hyped and it never quite works out for them, but it does seem like they're going to be a real force to reckon with at that next T20 World Cup. Yeah, I know there were rumours around his potential return for that now you know, pushed back tournament, but is that on the cards properly that it, that he'll be back? I think so. It seemed almost set in stone if it was going to be in October that he'd be back. And I, I think the the fact that you have all these sort of with Smith, Smith and Boucher there, exactly. I think yeah. there's there's yeah there's a, a lot more um, persuasion uh, there to get De Villiers back on board. I, I, it feels like an inevitability, and also the fact that you just pick up having not played for so long, just joining these tournaments and and play so naturally is, is still so impressive. But I guess the flip side of that. Is he comes in fresh every time? He's he's not got the calendar that everyone else has, and that that was his main reason for for leaving the international scene in the first place. Yeah, it was it was getting burnt out, wasn't it? Really? Yeah. So, yeah I, I, just on that specific example of yours, I was watching that that as well, and it was weird, wasn't it? Because it felt, if not inevitable, then likely that he was going to win the game, and yet if you look at it on paper, they needed thirty-one off two overs, <laughs> and yet you're thinking, no, that if he's on strike then, yeah, they'll probably pull this off. Uh, and Smith uh, should have bowled Archer for that penultimate over. That seems to be the convention now, that your your absolute gun bowler bowls the penultimate. Uh, they bowled the left armour. He, he took him took him downtown. Um, and that was pretty much that. And there was an, an, air, an air of inevitability about it. Uh, he's Coley on De Villiers is good uh, because he's just in awe of him, isn't he? You imagine being a cricketer where Coley's in awe of you. That must be quite quite a giggle. Well, um, it's interesting though, isn't it? It's almost like the two paths to greatness in a way. Like Co- Coley is a player who is he's like kind of made the absolute maximum of everything he does. He sort of like runs twos better than anyone else. He's so fit, like obviously in the gym, like constantly kind of thing. Whereas an is not not that he doesn't do all those things very well as well, but there's just that that extra little like sprinkle of stardust I guess that he can just like do the absolute freakish things that basically no other crook in the world can do yeah I'm with you there I like to think that Coley's kind of a bit crap at tennis and not very good <laughs> at snooker and that sort of things whereas obviously De Villiers is, is a world champion at everything famously bad at darts I think Virat is he yeah he just there yeah, you go can't hit the ball bar billiards his bowling was always a bit embarrassing he doesn't do that anymore yeah yeah I guess he he's a bit, a bit above that but yeah. yeah that was that was pretty ranked sort of yeah. 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 He, he did a <laughs> we actually you mentioned it because we had a piece on the uh the part-time is he got really big wickets on wisdom.com this week and he had Kevin Peterson stumped off technically his zeroth delivery in T20i cricket because it was a wide and then Tony <laughs> stumped Zeroth. Peterson. So you had Coley uh, bowling, Kev- oh, sorry, P- Peterson stumped Tony, bowled Coley off uh, an illegal delivery. Which Marvellous. Quite something, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so just, Good stuff. Yeah. Joe, what, what? Yes. <laughs> Joe, what, what's your moment of the week? Uh, my moment of the week is the news that came through yesterday that England are going to South Africa for a white ball tour uh, from November 27th. Three T20s, three ODIs split across uh, Cape Town and Pearl behind closed doors, obviously. Uh, look, it's obviously fantastic news for us as journalists because we have some cricket to cover over the next few weeks and months. That's, that's a relief. Uh, it's obviously fantastic for fans. But it is particularly fantastic for Cricket South Africa, who are in dire straits 
financially. Uh, Neil Manthorpe, who is the best informed writer on South African cricket around, um, described this tour as critical to the financial survival of Cricket South Africa. Um, he says that if the tour hadn't gone ahead, uh, they stood to lose 70 million rand, that which amounts to more than 3 million quid. Money they just can't afford to lose at all. Um, so there was a lot riding on this tour. So kind of however it goes, it's already been a success for cricket in South Africa in, 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 in some senses. Um, but Neil does say that there is real issues there um, that are going to take a long, long time to fix. They've sacked their CEO recently, Thabang Moreau, um, for kind of uh, well terrible financial mismanagement, perhaps worse than that. Um, and Neil finishes his, a piece on his own website, which is worth checking out. If you've got any interest in South African cricket, always the best place to go. He writes, when England arrive in this country, they could be given, forgiven for feeling that they are visiting a smouldering battlefield, which is the state of cricket South Africa now. Um, but the positive news is we've got some cricket to watch in November, which was no guarantee. Um, and it's another good test for England ahead of T20 World Cup. Yeah, and, and it's part of the Cricket World Cup Super League, which we... Of must course, mention. yes, of course. Uh, but yeah, it should, should, should be really because those, those games were great at the end of that uh, test series early this year. Uh, that was a really exciting pair of white ball series. And obviously, England have a few things to work on after after this summer, and South Africa look kind of like a bit of a coming force again. So it should be really exciting, just from a cricket point of view. But Absolutely, yeah. and I can't, I can't wait to watch more of Nokia up against England's obviously formidable batting lineup. That will be great. Rabada's obviously in top form. Is there a chance De Villiers could even be persuaded to play in this one? Mm. It seems like a long shot, but but you never know. Uh, and as you say before, uh, Quinton de Cox's in fantastic form, so that should be great. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and and also, you know, good news around the the probability now that England will be playing in Pakistan as well. Similarly, uh, a, an important kind of pioneering tour, really, and reflective of uh, a more united world game probably than we've had in in quite a while. And obviously, the sense of of helping one another out uh, and propping up one another uh, as we've seen for the last six months over here in England and, and the same will all, almost certainly be applying in, in the early part of next year. It will be a week-long whistle-stop tour, is that right? In, in Subject to the various checks and, and safety analyses and so on, Big Reg will be going out there for <laughs> England and checking it all out. Um, Reggie D. Reggie D. But uh, uh, yeah, important uh, and positive and and outward-looking moves by the ECB, which is being reflected in how, of course, other other boards are, are responding to them as well. So, you know, it's good signs, I think. And let, let's be honest, this is propping us up as well as, as journalists, but also fans. It's going to be, without going into the, the dreary stuff too much, it's going to be a, a long winter, and we all want some cricket to watch. So this is, this is fantastic You'll get your news. TV sorted in time <laughs> for it. I really, really hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to have to come and sit in the office over the whole of winter. In other English news, the uh, the structure of the county first class competition has been confirmed. So I'll see if I can get this all out. So it'll be three conferences of six who play each other twice, with two from each then going into three divisions, where all the teams who haven't yet played each other play each other once. The top of Division 1 are the county champions, and the top two in Division 1 contest that contest the Bob Willis Trophy final. Jim, first of all, <laughs> does that make sense? And second of all, do you like it? Um, I... I, I don't understand it really it might be because i'm not um grasping it but it seems overly complicated uh and there's something that the, the bob willis i don't know they could have made more i think it was because it was quite successful this year they could have had it as its own sort of standalone thing whereas now it's coming after the rest of it it feels a bit like a tack on um, it feels more charity shield than fa cup it, it feels a bit like a yeah like a, a run out at the end of the season um but I, I have to be honest, it makes as much sense to me as the Test World Championship. So, yeah. Is that, G- Jim's our resident humorist. You shouldn't ask him for, for, <laughs> for, 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 for <laughs> miserable <laughs> questions like that. I couldn't get up for that question at all. <laughs> no. He's not here for that. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, he's not here for this. But Phil, what do, what do you make of it? Well, like I'm it? not sure I am either. <laughs> um, what do I think? I, I echo Jim's garbled point that he made up on the spot <laughs> regarding... The sense that it will be after the Lord Mayor's show somewhat, but then I don't think that's a sen- that's especially bad. It, it's a showpiece. Uh, it, it would be a it would be great for any county to win the double. It would be it would be a joy to to move into that Lord's final, having already taken the the championship, and then to take that. 
equally, it gives it gives a county who's maybe overachieved somewhat a, another bite of the cherry, you know. So Somerset can fail twice rather than just once. The, the, the nature of that Lord's final was quite persuasive. It was certainly a sign of things to come. And so they want to have that, uh, that celebration game at the end of the end of the summer. So I can understand that. It will be slightly diluted. It will be slightly confusing to work out who's actually won what. But then it, it has the, the dual effect of uh, sanctifying the championship. So it, it, the whole championship pennant, which has been... Since AD 12 or whatever, people have been scrapping it out for that. It re- re- returns that to the agenda, but it also maintains this nice showpiece thing at the end. So I can understand why they've done it. They've kind of taken a bob each way on it. Uh, also, it's very important to point out that this is a, this is a one-off thing. Um, just on that, though, uh, before Joe comes in, uh, I've spoken to one or two CEOs and the, the three-divisional six teams per division is pretty much rubber stamped from 2022 onwards the issue is around the regionality or otherwise of it whether it is divisions one two and three and 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 a reflection of where teams have fallen in the last year or two or whether it is a regional thing or whether it's a conference thing uh and then if there there's going to be maybe possibly semi-finals or whether it would just be a final with the top two teams from those three divisions that's still up for grabs, but the reduction in the number of games and the uh, the move to three three tiers of six is looking very very likely from 2022. Yeah, well, well, these these are these are conferences for next year, so they're seeded based on sort of a confusing combination of positions Indeed. from 2020 and 20. Indeed, which 19. which which will probably be the favourite, and I don't know about you, Joe, but that's <coughs> how I would want to go if if we are going to see these three lots of six because to to regionalise it would mean that potentially, you know, Sussex and Durham don't play each other for five years, you know, and that, that just wouldn't really sit Anything right with me. three tiers makes a lot of sense, really, in general, Oh, I think. nice. Political. Yeah. There he is. That's yes. more like it. <laughs> Roaring back. Uh, yeah, too complicated, I think. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it like this. I think keep it nice and simple. I wouldn't have departed. I could understand the need to potentially stick with regional this year, so I wouldn't have been against just doing what we had this year. Everyone plays each other twice, and then you have your, your grand final. Uh, and then the year after that, when hopefully the world has returned to something like normal, you have effectively yeah a, a Premier League Championship, League One of the of the three sides based on how they've done over the last year. Uh, and I still would have the grand final at the end of that, and that would be the winner of the whole competition, not not a kind of double winner, which I think is going to uh, confuse fans, and no one's going to be quite sure what they want to win or what the big thing is. It, it just seemed unlike her. Like too, it felt like one of those things where too many people have spoken at a meeting, and you've got too many ideas. Uh, this is having had an editorial meeting about <laughs> two hours ago. <laughs> um, and actually, everyone's just wanted their bit in there and you've ended up with something more confused than it needed to be. Yeah, I, th- I think I, I I don't mind a few aspects of the structure. Like I kind of like the, the race to Lords aspect of splitting into three divisions and having that top six be like a very concentrated thing. Two things that I worry about. Firstly, those divisions two and three are dead games. basically just playing four dead rubbers each team. So you've got, yeah which is which is a bit silly for me and then also i would like that lord's final they haven't confirmed the playing conditions for it yet i would like it to be shared if the game is drawn because if it's sort of a shop window game i think that that is the way you'll end up with more exciting finishes whereas if you have a team that if they get out in front on a first innings and then can basically just like not 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 to not dragging essex here they did what they needed to do to win the title this year but, but if they can sort of get out in front and then just kind of hold the other team at arm's length that doesn't make for particularly or it might not make for a particularly engrossing cricket race. If you've got a situation where teams have to sort of set up a declaration on the last day and end up chasing, you know, 220 and 60 overs, that'll be a really good advert for first-class cricket in England, I think, if this is going to be perhaps the game that's that's on Sky or that is made a big fuss out of. And I, and I don't mind the two titles kind of thing. I, I think the Counter Championship will end up being the one that people want to win. And yeah. the Bobbillist Trophy is kind of like a, an added extra that's like a sort of a nice end-of-season festival kind of thing. But I, I, I like that, I think. Yeah, as ever, it's, it is a devilishly tricky job to arrange the English season and you have to try and placate the members and members albeit they, they don't make up an enormous uh, percentage of people who are following cricket but they they are still significant obviously um, and overridingly members want to see four-day cricket more average fair-weather cricket fans uh, casual cricket fans are not, not as fast but they want to see that and there is a legit argument that you want, as we as in cricket lovers, we want to see 
especially young cricketers, playing as much four-day cricket as possible. So there, I can understand the, the the theory behind it that 10 games may be insufficient in a season such as next year when it's going to be a bit garbled anyway and that they can try and find a system to play a few more four-day games. I can understand the thinking there. Uh, but I don't think this will be the model from 2022 onwards. I'd be surprised if it, if it plays out like that from, from next next year. Okay. But we shall see. The t- two other bits of, of news I suppose to tell you about. The, uh, the Lanka Premier League draft has happened. That's a T20 league going to happen in Sri Lanka. Yes. Uh, Sam Patel and Liam Plunkett are the two England players who've been snapped up in that. So if you're fans of either of those two, that's your tournament. Who's not? Uh, and, and, and the Sheffield Shield is back. And it's unfortunately my job to tell you that Australia have found another one. Yeah. Uh, Phil Cameron Green. Cameron Green. Tell us about him. Well, I don't know an enormous amount. I think you probably should should fill us in on this one, but I'm aware that he's essentially Bradman and Lily all rolled into one. <laughs> he made 197 this week and I, I saw some footage of it. And what struck me the most uh, is just how gutted he was to be out three shy of a double hundred. Um he, he was absolutely hit it. crestfallen. He was down on his haunches, dragged off the pitch, head down, tears flowing from his, his ducts. He was absolutely wrecked by it. And that, to me, just says 10,000, 12,000 test runs and probably 400 test wickets. And it's going to be agony to watch him. The other thing is that he doesn't really turn me on as a player, having seen him. He's tall. He's got touches of, um, of Crawley to him but uh, not quite as fluent, not quite as fluid, rather. Uh, but he's just going to get runs, loads and loads and loads and is loads Is he really young? How he also... Is he? 21? So okay. he's, he's 21. He, he averages 50... Fi- fi- uh, 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 shall I do the stats, Phil? Yeah, you not, take on the not, stats. Not your area so much, is it? He did, a he real take, brush off there, wasn't it? He Don't did get take, off stats. Uh, all right. You've <laughs> got my heckles up now. Um, he did take nine for 42 in a first-class game. So he's played, like, I don't know, like a dozen first-class games or something. He averages 50-something with a bat. He took nine for 42 match figures. Yeah, that's Just good, bowling, 140 clicks, hitting the splice. He's already annoying me. And I've yeah, exactly. Up, yeah. And Cameron Green. Can you get a more Australian Cameron name? Cameron Green, Green, yeah. Anyway, so, ben. So, 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 yeah, as, as has been said, he's, he's 21 years old. Uh, since the start of the 2019 uh, Sheffield Shield season, He's got five hundreds, a high score of that one nine seven, an average of about seventy. Uh, is now his overall first class record. I think is is averaging fifty five with the bat and twenty two with the ball, uh, and that and that twenty two with the ball is bowling above one hundred and forty kph according to reports. Uh, so he's batting four, isn't he? State cricket. Yeah, yeah, he, and he's moved up the order quite quickly. Like, as his first hundred was sort of a, a brilliant match save when they were sort of like ninety for six, I think, and then he hit one hundred and thirty batting all day, uh, part, partnering with the tail, and now he's kind of in that kind of prime position. Interesting stuff, because Australia, they've not been blessed with all-rounders over the years. Shane mm. Watson's probably about as, as close as they've come to a kind of genuine test all-rounder in, in my time of watching cricket, really. Uh, you go back to Keith Miller, but they haven't really, that, that kind of 80s period where lots of teams had a great one. Australia didn't. So they'll have high hopes that they've finally discovered mm. one. But, but, but who knows? I mean... There is the sense that he's a genuine, genuine rounder. That's that's what they're thinking of him as, rather mm. than a batsman who bowls. Or yeah, a bit, little bit. He, he didn't bowl he's... in the game. He got the one ninety, and the one ninety was in the second innings of the game. But then it could have been a knock. I don't know the details. No, he, he hasn't. He hasn't been bowling as much recently. But then there's been a little bit of injury there. So I, th- I think okay. he's sort of managing that for the moment. But the the, the reports is that he, he is a proper bowler when he does bowl, as it were. So I, I guess he, he is going to be more of a batting all rounder. It seems like, but almost. I mean, you, you obviously, Phil's already said, talked him up to the hilt, but so it, I guess Jacques Callis will be the mould, I guess, of uh, the, the, the top Good four batsmen to aim, aim for. <laughs> yeah. who can also contribute with the ball more than handily. It's, and it's looking, he's got a decent shout of making that first test squad. Uh, look, from, yeah, look, look, that's, that's what, I was that's what the discussion is. He, he's, the, he's the most the most likely to sort of break into that, yeah. Look forward to him ruining our Christmas next year. Exactly. Uh, so sp- speaking of, of great all-rounders, uh, Ian Botham's wines. So during Sir Ian Botham's oh, forty-year career in cricket, he has travelled the world, both playing cricket and commentating. During this time, when he had a day or two off, he spent his spare time nurturing his other passion, which is wine and the art of creating it. So Ian has visited vineyards and wineries from around the world and has worked with renowned winemakers to hand-select parcels of wines that best represent his favourite regions and varietal to present his award-winning range. 
So Ian has created a range of wines that he is very proud and happy to serve at his own table to his family and friends. So Ian has personally selected an exclusive case of wine to share with Wisdom readers and podcast listeners, which includes a signed photograph of the great man during the 81 Ashes. Head to bothamwines.com forward slash product forward slash wisdom dash botham dash box to get yours today. That's bothamwines.com forward slash product forward slash wisdom dash botham dash box to get yours today. Flawless. Thank you. Right then, this is what you've all been waiting for. Our season in the sun 11. Right, so what's this prompted by, Ben? So it's inspired by Rahul Tawatia, who uh, coming into the IPL with no real sort of pedigree behind him, has uh, won Rajasthan Royals two games, basically single-handedly from absolutely nowhere with the bat, and also took an absolutely brilliant catch last week, one of these sort of boundary rope jugglers. But what made it especially good was that like about 10 minutes before, he had given Robin Utapa an absolute bollocking for messing up a chance in, in the field. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so so, so w- w- when you've done that and then a really tough one comes your way, you've really got to take it and he did it. He's just an absolute, seems like an absolutely clutch player, but who knows? And he's 30 odd years old. He's, he's not even a journeyman, not really featured particularly. Yeah, pretty much. He's kind of one of the kind of matchup bowlers. So he's sort of getting teams and often go through games bowling, maybe one over, but not really doing anything. Okay. That, now he seems like a world beater this year. So have you seen the, have you see- to do here? So this, this team then is an 11 of players who came from nowhere to shine for a time. It's a deliberately vague criteria so we can have sort of as, as cast on it as wide as possible. The right old Motley crew we've, we've, we've We've done most of the arguing and scrapping off mic, so we won't have to bore you with that side of the debate, but we're going to run through the, the stories of, of, of our 11. So, Joe, who, who, who's, who's our first opener? So our first opener, we're going with Dave Fulton. That's ex- who you're expecting me to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is, yeah. <laughs> Dave Fulton, yeah. Uh, so... Uh, obviously Kent Skipper for many years but his his career was kind of not going anywhere particularly fast apart from possibly ending so after making his first class debut in 1992 he scored 911 seasons then 2001 comes along and he scores nine in the season uh, in his in the final year of his contract career looks like it might be kind of disappearing quite quickly um, and then that summer he's very nearly picked for the Headingley Ashes test uh, Mark Butcher's broken curfew possibly not for the first time and Duncan Fletcher is sort of done with him and at the last minute Nasser Hussain convinces Fletcher to give Butcher one go one more go and obviously he plays one of the, the great test knocks by an England batsman and, and Fulton never gets his chance with England uh, then a couple of years later he gets smashed in the eye batting in the nets horrible horrible injury um, and he, he has it, perhaps it's a little bit unfair to have him in this team because he, he did have other seasons where he got a thousand plus runs but it was this one season 2001 uh, where he scored 1,892 runs at 76, 900s in there. Fulton goes from almost losing his county contract to being on the verge of the England Test team. And it's another one of these stories. Um, the uh, the Joss, what Josh Butler wrote on the top of his bat, famously. F it. Yeah. Uh, it's another one of those stories, really, that he'd become so wound up by county cricket, by the grind of county cricket, that he just reached the end, the, the end of, of hope, really, and just thought, right, well, sod it, see what happens. Opened up his stance, opened up his mind, and uh, got a few runs initially, and it just sort of cascaded from there, really. And um, We ran something on him, didn't we, Joe, in the magazine a few months ago, and I did the interview, and I, I tapped him up for it, and I've just found his WhatsApp message to me. <laughs> he said, yeah, I thought you might come to me on this. It seems to resonate, my 2001, because it gives mediocre players hope that one day everything might click. <laughs> this is from the man himself. And so he averaged 25 uh, in his career until that year, up to two, up the year 2000. And apparently it's the biggest differential in cricket history between a career average up to that point and a, and a single average that a Sky statistician That's worked out good for. stats. Uh, yeah, well, he's um, a worthy, worthy number one in our team. Then. Yeah, yeah. Just one other thing, just on, on his near call up, is that uh, I think Rob Key made the confession on I think the Great Cricketer podcast recently that that him and Graham Swan, while they were at the Un Nineteen World Cup, I think, had sort of also convinced him that he'd been called up because Graham Swan <laughs> is obviously England's impressionist in chief. So uh, word for him, yeah. So uh, <laughs> yeah. So so they they and Rob Key had had Fulton's phone number and they were sharing a room and were, were bored at this Un Nineteen World Cup. So call up Fulton. Uh, Graham Swan does the impression of whoever I guess it might have been Bumble at the time uh, and, and, uh, and and Fulton's absolutely so convinced that he had to call him back an hour later and say actually that, that was a wind up you can, uh, that's you really can stand cruel. down that's horrible isn't it, it? Really yeah. Cruel. Yeah. it's yeah. not like Graham <laughs> 
Right, uh, so Phil, you've got our other opener. Yes, I do. I'm not sure I fully agree with this selection, frankly. You don't agree with the team as a whole, do you? It's a no, 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 no. I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Certainly once we get to the bowlers, folks. You hang yeah. on for the bowlers. Uh, so, so Chris Broad uh, has been considered to be our, our other opening bat. Uh, Chris Broad, uh, big-bottomed left-hander uh, who was, was briefly uh, electric for England in the 86-7 Ashes, as, as everybody knows, really. He made 300s. I didn't realise that he also made 100 against Australia in the bicentenary game in 1988. Did you know that, Joe? Uh, yeah, I did, right, actually. Fine. But right, only because I was looking at it recently. Yeah, so he made 400s in six games against Australia, an average just a tick under 80. Uh, made 600s in all from 25 test matches. And yet, that was the extent of, of his England career. And he was the international cricketer of the year. So the, the precursor to the ICC's cricketer of the year. Uh at the end of that Australian tour, he was, uh, you, you would have thought at that point he, he was just under 30. So he was, yeah, he just turned 30 at that point. So you would think, okay, England have found one here. Gooch is back from his Rebel tour. You actually now have an opening partnership that can, that can really take, take England on. Uh, England being England, he had a couple of dud games against the West Indies uh, the following summer. In '88, in fact, and and after that, he was he was cast out. He he was 32 in the summer of 1989. Um, he'd made a lot of runs for Gloucester in the build-up, uh, and a lot of runs for Knotts as well. Uh, and then he was one of those that took took the filthy rand. In truth, he he, he was on that Rebel tour of of '89, um, and what was left of his test career which had been truncated by that point and and was a bit bitty he was in and out the side as was everybody at the time came to came to a sudden abrupt end really and so he finishes with this peculiarly lopsided career as I say 600 from 25 games four of which came in the ashes uh, and yet was was done and dusted uh, and taken taking the filthy Luca yeah I think he he, he fits for me, because he, uh, because well, it was probably just, your pick, wasn't well, it? Well, he was, yeah, but, but because of how, <laughs> because of how all of, of how dominant the Ashes is in discussing England it's players, in, it's it's plausible what, to imagine that now, isn't it? Yeah, to to have a player because because player careers their their careers are built up to the Ashes and they're like defined by that from then on as well, and to have a player who kind of came sort of from nowhere to then just dominate an Ash series, which was the last England one in Australia for what twenty five years, and then to basically fade from the scene thereafter yeah. although I mean no, none of these players really fit perfectly because you don't obviously get to professional cricket without being a good cricketer and then you don't stick around for long enough to be a journeyman without actually having some good days here and there well there, there is one of the bowlers who kind of didn't really play professional cricket and ended up playing playing test cricket yes so, yeah, but we can come to we that later and um, <laughs> one other thing on broad just briefly is that he was deemed to be quite a tricky customer uh, and England's infamously bad tour of Pakistan in 87, the Shakur Rana, Mike Gatting tour. Broad was on that tour. Broad was uh, a prickly character and at one point refused to walk when he was given out. Um, I mean, with good reason, when you look at it on YouTube. <laughs> uh, and that kind of, in inverted commas, petulance uh, was reflected as well against the West Indies the following tour as well. He was... Uh, vocally and obviously demonstrably um, pissed off with umpiring decisions. And when English cricket was kind of collapsing morally at that time anyway, uh, he was one of those that was deemed to be surplus of requirements, I think, because he was just considered a little bit too too much like hard work. Maybe that inspired him to become an ICC match referee. Those, sure, the those old shockers. poacher turned gamekeeper thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I thought we were going to get through without saying no, that. No, sorry, no, you have to. All the cliches. <laughs> Told you I don't like this idea. So, uh, uh, at number three, an- another contentious one. It's uh, India's Gautam Gambhir. And I know I know what you're screaming at home. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> Do you? It's, it's, it's what yeah, we all it's, screamed it's, at you 20 minutes ago. Yeah, it's, 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 the, it's the Gambhir. Obviously, you don't look at that, at that Crick Info profile. Uh, and think that here is an unfulfilled in any way cricketer. You know, played 50-odd tests, 4,000 runs, an average tick under 42. Obviously, played a brilliant innings in the in a World Cup final. Uh, but but when you look at that... At that <laughs> You're kind of talking about the team here. No, no, but, 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 but when you get to that 
test career in isolation. So I got 900s, but seven of those came in a sort of in a 13 month stretch between uh, what, October 2008 and November 2009. And at that point, he rose to number one in the world. Uh, you kind of think that India, and alongside Sewag, they have an absolute world beater here. Uh, got an, I think the best of those probably was a following on in New Zealand uh, to save India a game. And you kind of think, here's a, here's a player who can... Uh, who can kind of do it everywhere against all kind of bowlers. He can, you know, destroy the spin in India. He can handle the paint, handle the quicks. And then, and then it just didn't really happen. Then on, he got he got one more hundred and obviously was torn apart by by Boycott when he was recalled mm. in India in 2014. It was, wasn't he? Yeah. And, and eventually kind of just running himself out because he almost couldn't couldn't bear to be out there in a way. Uh, is, have you researched sufficiently to find out what his theory is himself, Gambier? What, why, that, why that year he was just so much better than at any other point in his career? No, but but I think I think to be honest, I think that actually, if you looked at quite a lot of cricketers' careers, who we kind of see as having had, in general, good careers, you would be able to find sort purple of patches patch. exactly that that actually is what elevates them. Like we, we were discussing uh, Ian Bell a while ago. Not not that he at all fits into this eleven, but that you uh he gets it even like two thousand and nine when he's been a Test cricketer for four years, and it's at, at that point that it kind of really clicks. And at that point, even even then, it only clicks for what three or four years or so. So it, he's almost he's making his way as a Test cricketer. Uh, for quite a lot longer than he's actually at his peak. But looking back, you think of Ian Bell, sort of brilliant test player for quite a, a long stretch of time. And I think I think that Gaussian Gambier just sort of concentrates that a little bit more, as it were. And, you know, so players just, I think it's mostly just, just form, really, is that they just come and go. But Gambier's yeah. was especially... And, and just, just just to be number one batsman in the world is what really tipped him for me, because to, to get up to that... Yeah, to, yeah, that is an anomaly. Okay, you make a, make a good case. You countered your initial case with a very strong case. <laughs> but it's probably... Uh, an apposite time to say anyone listening in who do, does have an opinion otherwise for, for our number three then please do shout yeah uh, across all the horrible social media disgrace platforms yes and uh jim you you've got our number four i think this is this is a good one david ward <laughs> oh uh, lovely yeah one of my faves actually nasher um i wonder why a phenomenal bloke Really popular around these parts at Surrey. Could often be seen strolling around the the boundary, chatting to the members, and a very popular popular figure. Uh, Croydon-born carpenter and joiner. Didn't play his first first class match until he was twenty four. Quite old. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And he played a, a one day game really late, didn't he? When he oh was oh god, yeah. There's some when images. He was a teacher. Yes. I think he was a Whitgift teacher, maybe, and they had an injury I've cry. Got it's it all down d- sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> so, no, you'd actually made some notes. Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, 2000. So, Joe, you I came across your article actually about the year of the year of the bat in 1990, and that's the year that Ward scored over 2,000 first-class runs, including seven tons at 76 point something. Uh, and then he retired in 1994 on 294 not out. Alex Stewart declared with him six short. Brutal gaffer. Uh, and that was that was his last first class knock. Anyway, so then he went on to become. That was his uh, last first class innings, two hundred ninety four not out. <laughs> Alex Stewart retired him. Yeah. What a way to go out that is. <laughs> so at the end of Joe's piece, so uh, Joe can tell you because he obviously spoke to him for this, but he says uh, the first game of the following season, I asked Stewie Alex Stewart what number I was batting, and he said number six. I said I've just scored two thousand runs last year. That was last year. He replied, normal service resumed. Oh, the gaffer. Yeah. Um, so yeah, prisoners. You're right. He did have a, a glorious comeback. So he was coaching uh, at Whitgift. So I don't know if he's still. I think he might still be there. But he, um, he was when I spoke to him. Yeah, yeah just a few months ago. Burns, yeah. Roy, and Sibley obviously all came through through that route. Uh, and he was coaching there in 2002, where I don't know what happened, but uh, sorry, we're woefully short of players. And he was convinced to play a Sunday league game against Northants at Whitgift. Uh, maybe he was doing detention or something on a on a sort of Sunday morning. <laughs> Age forty one, opened the batting and smashed seventy eight in fifty two balls. Oh, marvellous! You and imagine that when a few of your your kids are there, <laughs> sir. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, a phenomenal bloke, uh, very popular figure, and yeah, a cult favourite. Moving swiftly on to number five, uh, which is which is my my personal favourite in this eleven. Uh, Paul Baltati. I think right. It's a, it's a I gra- didn't know who this person was. Yeah, it's a, it's a great name for a start. So he, he did play India on 19s back in the early 2000s. But then he, so when the IPL came along, he didn't really get a gig at first. And he played his first game in 2009. Again, didn't really do much. And then all of a sudden, uh, in the 2011 IPL, basically unknown, opening the batting, smashes 120 off 63 balls against uh, Ravi Ashwin, Morkel and, uh, and Tim Saudi to single-handedly win Punjab a game. Then next game, still opening, smash 75 or 47 
And then that was basically it. He got one more 50 that season, none in 2012, and was dropped in 2013. Hasn't played IPL since. He's since playing like a sort of a, a lower level T20 competition, even though he's 36, is somehow a development player. So I'm not quite sure how that works. Uh, but yeah, just a, a kind of a, a shooting star of player. And, and sort of a shows how, how the IPL, as well as being a vehicle for discovering players, gives these kinds of players, like, like Duartia, sort of a, uh, a, a reason to kind of to keep, to keep going back because you might have this chance to kind of get superstardom for a day, I suppose. So I and it can cool. elevate them so quickly, can't hmm. it? All it takes is one knock. Whereas, compare it to, say, the blast here, you can have a good season and, and get a good contract and that's your c- kind of career set for the next couple of years. But in the IPL, you can basically hit 30 off 10 balls and suddenly be a superstar. Uh, <laughs> and there's, and there's, there's still no other league like that. It doesn't, doesn't exist in the same way in Big Bash. And also, there's just so much cricketing talent in India bubbling away that doesn't necessarily get a chance. Uh, and then you get these names suddenly emerge and some become superstars and some disappear a couple of games later. Mm. Yeah, that's why, that's why he, he, he's number five in the engine room. He can come and uh, sort of capitalise on the platform laid by uh, Fulton, Wharton Co. Yeah. Lovely. Uh, no, number six, uh, it's, 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 it's the Rahul Tuati 11. So uh, we've got to have our, our, our legs spinning all rounder. Is he captain? Number six. Uh, yeah, why not? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, uh, I was reluctant to include... This current players stuff. in this. It's not, it's, this is great. It's re- reluctant to include uh, current players in this because who knows, he could, he could yet go on to sure. become a proper world beater. Sure, but, yeah. but, but just on the theme, he's there. And we'll, we'll come back to the keeper later and that will be explained why. Uh, but Phil, you, mm. you've got our first quick. Right. In at seven? Well, why not? I mean, well... The, uh, seven's, seven's a keeper. So it's Sorry. Okay. Yeah. All right. So eight, nine, ten, eleven, just just interchangeable. That's fine. Yeah. And the other, some of the others, we've got a, a proper bunnies as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so Frank Tyson, really, the, the typhoon himself, uh, it, he was described by both Benno and Bradman as the quickest bowler they'd ever seen up to that point. And that point was 1954-5. Uh, that... Uh, Ashes tour that England won, having been demolished four years beforehand. Uh, he took, in all, 76 test match wickets from 17 games at an average of 18 and a bit. The, the majority, well, not the majority, but a good chunk of those were taken in that one series. He took 10 for at Sydney. Well, he took one for 160 to begin with in the first test match. Um, and then he shortened his run-up. Uh, and took 10 for at Sydney and then took 9 for at Melbourne to ace those two games and essentially uh, clinch the series for England. The 7, the seven for 27 that he took at Melbourne in the second innings uh, is considered to be perhaps the most ferocious, appallingly terrifying uh, Ashes spell, certainly this side of Mitchell Johnson. Uh, and he was big tall, strapping, uh, but so much of his pace was generated by this kind of sort of unusually elongated delivery stride. And of course, back in the old days, you could drag your back foot because of the no ball rule and so on. Uh, And while he got a lot of his pace and a lot of his propulsion from that delivery stride, it was also asking for trouble from an injury perspective. And so when he got home from that Ashes tour... Those hard Australian pitches had taken their toll on his body and his frame. And 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 as a test cricketer, uh, there wasn't anything left for him after that. He he staggered along, playing for North Ants. He was he was not he had a decent county career, but he wasn't renowned. He wasn't at a fashionable club. He didn't win championships. He was at North Ants and so on. Injuries took their toll, and he was done with the professional game by the age of thirty. He was an interesting character. He was a sort of Shakespeare quoting, Wordsworth quoting, uh, Wordsmith, a university man. Um, so a break from the archetype of the, the you know, the sort of strapping, wordless farmhand, fast bowler of the time. Uh, and he emigrated to Australia soon after, became a head teacher out in Melbourne as well, and, and, and finally coached Victoria and became a well-respected writer and commentator on the game. Uh, but... He's, he's one of these fleeting quicks. Um, rare we get through a week without talking about Simon Jones, but that's the, the man that you think of. And, and test cricket, and indeed cricket generally, is littered with these stories of quicks who, who redefined what it was and burnt very bright and flickered 
and then was extinguished all too all too early. And 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 Tyson was probably uh, the, the 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 most natural archetype of that. Really, there was also that kind of uh, fairy tale elements to the Tyson story, where that in that Sydney Test when he took ten wickets. He got hit on the back of the head by a Ray Lindwall bouncer. Yeah, uh, was not to the floor. And uh, David Frith writes about this. Wrote about this for us a few years yeah. ago. The, the, the crowd kind of thought he was dead, just lying there unmoving for a bit. And then he he, he kind of rises like Lazarus <laughs> and and just destroys Australia's batting. Mm. Taking well, like the Undertaker. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or him. Yeah, uh, yeah that's not, and, that's and the, the thing for me with 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 with, with Frank Tyson is that like. Uh, growing up as sort of like a, a cricket fan but not one who was sort of scouring the record books he was someone that you kind of he would be mentioned along with England other England fast bowlers so you'd kind of if you before you check it you kind of assume from how people talk about him he was sort of like a 60-70 test player who took mm. you know 200 wickets and was one of the true greats when actually he managed to build sort of like a legacy on the back of this this one of two three. test matches really yeah. Melbourne-Sydney game but it's because it's it's that that game isn't it? it's because it's that that rivalry that what you do there is amplified and, and elevated. Uh, I remember we did our years and years ago. We did our all-time Ashes uh, cult heroes, and and mine was mine was the Typhoon because it's just such a good hipster's choice. <laughs> it just it just works so perfectly. And he quotes Wordsworth, which you probably quite like. Yeah, you yeah. know, he's, he's sort of pretentious and self-regarding, and and also c- can play a bit of cricket. You know, so what's not, not what's not to love about that? Yeah. Joe, you've got our next seamer, who's who's not not quite Frank Tyson, I think. He's not Frank Tyson. Uh, I was a bit surprised that he made the cut, but I'm delighted that he did, especially now I've done a bit more research. I haven't even read our 11, so I don't know who this is. Okay, so this is news to us. This is Dr. Julian Barton de Corsi Thompson. Oh, Jules. uh, A Cape Town born former Kent fast bowler from the 90s who juggled uh, his cricket career with a career in medicine. So he played a bit of second team cricket early 90s, but was always having to primarily be, be a doctor. Uh, made his debut in 94 then in the summer of 95 playing against the touring West Indians only his third first class game he dismisses Brian Lara for a duck in each innings the only bowler ever to do that in a first class game what? Uh, and then doesn't really play for the next This that's not his summer in the sun by the way so he doesn't <laughs> even play for the next few years just plays a couple of games here and there where his shifts allow at the hospital then in 1999 he decides he's going to give cricket a proper go plays a full season with Kent uh, takes 64 wickets at, at 19 He's named Kent's Player of the Year, signs a new contract, ready to commit to cricket, going to leave the doctor stuff behind, uh, and then gets a knee injury, uh, never plays another game of professional cricket, and goes back to being a doctor. So wow. he had, yeah, so, so he, had a, he had his season in the sun with Lara double as the precursor, uh, and then never seen again in professional cricket. He's an, he was named an honorary GP at Kent County Cricket Club. Oh, that's nice. So do, do all clubs have an honorary GP? I don't think so. Okay, just this is definitely one of your back in the day interviews, Joe, isn't it? I should do that. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously quite a lot of them revolve around Kent, but that's that's okay. (laughs) It's all right. (laughs) You know, if you've got a dicky knee, stick to what you know. Double up, get get yourself checked out. Maybe you can fix your skybox, Joe. Uh, (laughs) Uh, So yeah, that's that's a good doctor. (laughs) That's a brilliant story. So that is Dr. Julian Barton de Corsi Thompson. Brilliant. De Corsi is strong. Yeah, uh, and Jim, you, you've you've got our final. Quick who, who else is a De Corsi in cricket stats? <laughs> stats uh, trivia. Uh, is, uh, it's a, is it West oh. Indian fast bowler? No, uh, almost half right. Uh, what one of the W's? Yeah, Everton. Oh. Weeks. 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 Well yes. done, Ben. Well yes. done. Well done. Good knowledge. Oh, the tension in the room. <laughs> right, let's put, let's crack on. <laughs> yeah, Jim, you've got our next quick. Jeff Allott. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he said <laughs> certainly. He's a, he's in. Jeff um, Allott. Yeah, so he he's in for his 99 World Cup where he took uh, 20 wickets, uh, not a lot. He uh, 4 for 37 against Australia, 4 for 64 against Pakistan, 4 for 35 against South Africa. I think you already mentioned big bums once, but he's, you know, si- mm. sizable mm. behind Mark Elam-esque, but left-hander. People don't talk about the decline of the, the, the big, big bottom fast bowler yeah. enough, do they really? Yeah. Probably not. Yeah, big, big bottom, bell bottom, 99 uh, Kiwi. Lovely stuff. He, <laughs> he, he uh, I looked at some YouTube footage before. I did do my research. He had, uh, and I, and someone else mentioned this online. He was one of the f- one of the most famous uh, sock um, shoe cutters, fastballer, and he had a little bit of sock sticking out of his uh, oh, the old, the old Derek of his Pringle shoe, technique. like a, yeah, oh. yeah. 
Um, but you mentioned rabbits earlier, so he, so yeah. Jeff Allett, uh, in another um, sort of, uh, he he he's uh, he's got the longest test duck, so he batted for 101 minutes, 77 balls against South Africa at Auckland in 1999 before Jack Callis got him out. Of course he did, and I, I quite like this little detail as he was walking off after the longest duck in test history, he raised his bat to all corners of the ground. Lovely, that is lovely, yeah. And I think that was one of those torturous partnerships for the last wicket, where sort of the the batsman was getting like a, a single off the fourth ball of every over. Yeah. And, and it was very much just that. It was basically like a run and over partnership that was a... But he's faced a lot of balls there. 77 no, 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 balls. Yeah, in yeah, but so it went on for absolutely ages, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. So Jimmy's 55 at Headingley against South... Uh, Sri Lanka, sorry, is, the, is number two. Yeah. So... Well, there you go. Good stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I, I guess World Cups are the other real chance in this in this thing. We, we, that, he's the only one we've got for their World Cup exploits. But you do get those players, don't you? To kind of just well, that was it. I think it was my World nomination. Cup. It was it was he was an honest toiler who had this one World Cup summer, where I think at the time he was the leading wicket taker ever in a World Cup, uh, and it was early season English conditions suited him perfectly. Uh, and then for the rest of the career, he, he was fine. He was he was a decent seamer. But there was just a kind of six-week period where you he was it around. the best seamer in the country. Some great wickets, lots of lots of bolds and LBWs. In yeah, top order wickets, up. good batsman. Yeah, yeah. Warren pipped him actually. Warren got one more wicket in one more game in the, in that ninety-nine World Cup. Uh, so Phil, you you've got obviously we've got Tuatik and can roll his arm over for, for some leggies, but he's mostly there to smash thirty rounds off and over, having uh, having really struggled up until that point. Yeah. So you've got our spinner. Yeah. So Jack Iverson. Uh, a Victorian, Australian uh, mystery spinner. Uh, if people really want to know about him, go and read Gideon Hayes' astonishing biography of, of Iverson. It's, it's a real masterpiece. Uh, Jack Iverson was a, um, a, a, an off-break bowler who may have been a leg-break bowler, who may have been an off-break bowler, who may have been a leg-break bowler. He, 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 he redefined what what wrist and, and finger spin was. He predated the carom ball. Uh, he was in the army uh, in, the, in the late 40s and he spent many, many weeks with a tennis ball on his own practicing how to spin a ball off his middle finger. And the middle finger in the end became so strong and he had these, these incredible strong fingers. He was a big man, a big cumbersome lugubrious kind of bloke and he could he could spin spin a tennis ball initially and then a cricket ball off that middle finger so it would go in either direction with a no change in the action uh he played sub-district cricket in melbourne throughout his 20s he only started playing district cricket in melbourne when he was 31 and from then on he started to make a name for himself because he was able to deliver these these balls with, as as I say, no discernible change in his approach, spinning it off that finger, and it was impossible to read. For two years, maybe even three, he was broadly unstoppable in district-grade cricket in Australia uh, to the extent that he was promoted to play for Victoria. He had one or two seasons for for Victoria and averaged next to nothing for his wickets. Uh, England were due. This was the late 40s, turn of the, turn of the decade. England were due in 1950-51. Len Hutton was the skipper at that time. England didn't have a great side uh, at that point, uh, but they turned up in Australia, and uh, Iverson had uh, almost by accident moved to the front of the queue. Uh, he played... All of those test matches against England, he played five test matches uh, of which that was the entirety of his test career. He took 21 wickets at 17, I think. Just let me check that. 15, sorry. Cheers, Joe. 21 wickets at 15. Um, England were clueless. Hutton was asking everyone in Australian cricket what's going on and nobody had the answer because he was an unknown, because he just emerged out of nowhere. So he was asking great old players. He asked Bradman. He asked... Uh, Morris, he asked players who just retired, players who could help him through, and no one had any answers. Um, he was unstoppable for the first half of that series. Uh, Hutton, in the end, being the genius that he was, figured out that he had to play him as an off-break bowler. Uh, and echoes of Murali, my word, echoes of Murali. And now the Carambal may have been more Mendis la- la- latterly in our time, but 
that's how people ended up playing Morelli. You play him as an off-break bowler and the one that goes the other way, well, so be it. It's, hopefully we're going to miss it. Hutton, by the end of the series, had figured this out. But for the start of the series, he was as flummoxed as anybody else. In the fourth test match, Iverson did a McGrath and he stood on the ball and he twisted his ankle quite badly. He stumbled through, staggered through that test match, played the final test match and took three or four. But the damage had been done earlier on in that series. Uh, he was, by this point, 35 years old anyway. Uh, and that final test match, which he, he, he limped through with, with a busted ankle, was his final appearance for Australia in international cricket. So he retired having played just the one series. Uh, it's an astonishing story, really. Um, and he vanished just as quickly as he'd, as he'd emerged, really. It didn't help that he was considered to be one of the worst fielders in the history of professional cricket. <laughs> so bad that he didn't even bend down to get the ball. He just used to boot it to the nearest fielder. That's he was, cool. He was as bad with the bat as he was in the field and as reluctant to get involved in that kind of caper. He was simply a genius with his middle finger. Uh, and that middle finger dominated an Ashes series against Hutton and the like. I like the, uh, if you go to his quick info profile, rather than a picture of his face, which every other profile has, <laughs> you've actually just got a picture of his, <laughs> his middle finger. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, and finally, the bit you've all been waiting for, the keeper. Uh, Joe, is this your, your, your favourite player, would you say? Tony Frost? Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> no? Do I need to for the benefit no, of the... No, not, not at all, no. It's, it's, it's Julian DeCourcy, surely. It, he's one of those that always seems to come up on this podcast and we always sort of go to you for it. So it seems like you're a, you're his biggest fan. No, I'm not. I know. But he's, he's got a proper county cricket story, which I guess is, is why it always yeah, yeah, crops up. Um, so yeah, so he was Warwickshire's keeper for many years, did a very solid job, a fine batsman but not not especially not a keeper not a batsman keeper um uh, he retired at the end of the 2006 season uh first class average 28 so fine good career he decides rather than kind of going off leaving cricket altogether he wants to be a grounds groundsman at Edgebaston uh and he's very happy with his life there enjoying the tranquility sitting on his mower still being part of the club but not playing anymore uh but then the winter of 2007 when Tim Ambrose gets called up for England Ashley Giles, who's just become Warwickshire's coach, gives him a tap on the back and says, uh, we need a keeper for the season. Uh, just filling in here and there, Frost says, yeah, sure, sure, I'll, I'll do it. Why not? I'll come back again. Uh, and then what follows is this incredible season where Frost is keeping wicket initially, but when Ambrose comes back into the side, Frost continues as a specialist batsman because he's just scoring run after run after run in, in county cricket. Um, so he... He finishes the season by scoring an unbeaten double hundred in the penultimate match against Essex, his first of his career, and then goes past a thousand runs in the final game of the season. Finishes the year with thousand and three runs at eighty-four, uh, edging out Amla, Trot, and Ramprakash to finish top of the averages in the whole country, having started his year sitting on a mower looking after the, the lawn at Edgebaston. Uh, and he played one more year, did all right, and then thought, no, that's that's it. I'll go back to being a groundsman, then then joined the ground staff again for a couple of years, and now he's he's batting coach at Warwickshire. Dom Sibley praised Frost as, as one of the main reasons behind his resurgence. So he's still, I think he's been at Warwickshire for 27 years now, still doing his thing. Uh, I hope he's still got a mower. He just coaches <laughs> while on his mower. I, I'd be Seems really be surprised. I'd be really surprised if he doesn't. <laughs> he really like that was. He talked about his season with with kind of a lot of. Um, enjoyment but it was really the the, the mower it was the mower him, that did it for that, him that got him going uh so yeah he's your, he's your perfect season in a son uh and it it took him as much by surprise as it ever did everyone else i think mm-hmm. and the reason we wanted him is, is not only because he's one of the only ones that actually really fits into this 11 but also because you've uh <laughs> you, you've interviewed him for the for the uh latest wisdom cricket monthly which is uh out nice. out this week seamless uh and uh so that we've i think we've got enough of flavor of, of tony frost now but what, what, what are the other highlights of uh of, of, of that of that issue um well as people listen to last week's show will remember we've got the 12 best young batsmen in england uh profiled based around the uh, exclusive interview with zach crawley so that is the the lead feature that's the cover story uh but a couple of things i'll pick out and then phil you can pick out a couple of things if you can remember wow what <laughs> that's okay. taken you by surprise yeah absolutely but anyway I, i'll give you i'll play for time uh <laughs> 
the, my favorite piece in the whole magazine is uh, John Hotton's piece on Jeffrey Boycott at 80. Uh, it's a challenging subject to cover, obviously, uh, hugely divisive. Uh, and John does it beautifully, uh, talking about some of the darker elements of his character, but also recognizing uh, some of the incredible achievements he's, he's, he's made in his career. Speaking to people like Dan Norcross, who sat alongside him in the commentary box, the Test Match Special, who, who talks about how intimidating it was, um, but how he grew to become quite fond of him over the years, albeit not always a, a kind of tricky personality in some ways. So I would absolutely recommend reading that piece from John. That is a brilliant piece of work. Uh, it's and a masterpiece, other, that. It is, yeah. I mean, John, everything he writes is beautiful, but that is, is particularly good. Uh, and rattled off in about a day as well because he'd spoken to Mike Brilly for something else and was like, well, just just give me a day and then this turns up, which is beautiful for an editor. Uh, and then Michael Holding interview by John Stern, our editor at large, uh, which is talking, talking to Holding really about this, this unexpected summer where he's kind of broken out from the confines of the game, um, had an opportunity to speak in a way that hasn't really presented itself before and been able to articulate some of the things that have, that have concerned him hugely, obviously related to the Black Lives Matter um, debate this summer. Um, he's always an interesting man to listen to and none more so than this summer where there's been much more than cricket to talk about. Mm, yeah, And Phil, your, your favourite was, was Shields, wasn't it? Shield Berry's piece on the season unlike any other. Uh, it, this magazine's got some really good writing in it, some real virtuoso wordsmithery. And Shields' piece slips right in there. Uh, it's really elegiac and stylish and slightly melancholy, but driven by a deep, enduring love for the thing, which, which Shield does better than anybody, I would say. So that's glorious. Um, just, just one other thing. Remember the Compton Cricket Club, the LA Cricket Club? Yes. The Los Angeles yeah, yeah, Cricket yeah. Club from a few years back. Unlikely story, founded in downtown LA, uh, to combat the effects of poverty and homelessness in the, in the area at the time. The story went global. Nick Compton turned up, didn't he? Of course he did, yeah. Uh, anyway, Ben Falk, who's, uh, who's first, first time he's actually contributed to us, I think, but he's, he's a, an author's CC stalwart, very fine writer. Uh, he, he's returned to the Compton CC story to find out where the, the key protagonists ended up and what's happened to them since. That's, a, that's another... Uh, top, piece, top piece of work, really. Mark Wood on how he bowls quick as well. It's a nice nice feature as well. Um, Zahira all the, Bass. All the fun of the fair. Oh, and Zahira Bass, yeah. yeah. Zahira Bass um, uh, gives us his, his story of his of his life as well, which is which is a cracker. Yeah, it's all the fun of the fair, as ever. My, um, my, my favourite piece is a very important piece by Izzy Westbury on, uh, on diversity in cricket media, which obviously we can talk about, you know, uh, the lack of representation at the top level of the game, but almost that that matters less if the people telling the stories aren't going to understand them enough to be able to put them into words and voice properly. So that's indeed, indeed, she, she's done that expertly. She's also um, written her first column for us. She's signed up uh, as a regular columnist now for us. Um, a brilliant, fearless piece as ever, a probing piece, which is her, very much her style on the. The kind of the underbelly of the I, the IPL uh, out in the UAE um, and the have-nots um, bubbling under the surface of the of the haves and the have-plenties. So it's a brilliant piece by her. Uh, she joins the stable along with Andrew Miller and Adam Collins and Joey Harmon and Ben Gardner and Jim Wallace and all the rest of them. <laughs> yeah, well, that that that, that magazine is uh, as I say, it's out now. Uh, head to head to wisdom.com to uh, to pick that one up uh, and uh, do it. And that, and that that's that's the end of the show. Uh, <laughs> Yaz should almost certainly be back next week as long as he's not got himself uh, trapped under any any falling rocks or anything like that. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you uh, have enjoyed it, please tell your friends. And if you've really enjoyed it, maybe leave us a nice, even a five-star review on the podcast app. Four will do. Cheers. Podcast Network.